Hello, everyone. This is Barley Snyder's Legal Dose Podcast. My name is Derek Dissinger, and I'm the host of today's episode. I'm a partner here at Barley Snyder and the chair of our firm's real estate group, as well as the chair of our hospitality industry group. With me today, I have Mike Rahm, who is the managing director of Commonwealth Commercial Appraisal Group and the senior associate and director of valuation advisory at Landmark Realty. Welcome, Mike, and thank you for being on the podcast. Hey, Derek. Yeah, thanks for having me. We're here today to talk about assessment appeals, which is generally a pretty hot topic uh, here in our real estate group. And it's one I get a lot of questions about through the year, but especially around this time of year in Lancaster because of the August appeal deadline in Lancaster County for filing assessment appeals. So, Mike, who do you think is a good candidate for an assessment appeal? Well, as an appraiser, I wish it was everybody, right? Um, but sometimes sometimes there's better candidates than others. And, and again, I think what's important to remember here is that we're not appealing the tax bill. We're, we're appealing the assessment. And uh, more importantly, we're appealing the computed value, which is a reflection or a, a calculation of the assessment times the common level ratio. And the common level ratio is, it changes from year to year, right? So um, every re, every county does a reassessment every so often. In Lancaster County, I think they did it 10 years ago. In Franklin County, I know they haven't done it for 60 years, but the, the idea being the common level ratio fluctuates with median sale prices. And those median sale prices don't include outliers, such as maybe your $50 million warehouse or your uh, $1 transfers. You know, they're, they're including a bundle of sales that ends up largely being residential sales um, because of that, because of, because of the outliers that, that, was, that I just discussed. So um, who ends up being a good candidate? Well, after you do that calculation, you know, your assessed value times the common level ratio and and you arrive at this computed value, that's what you're comparing against market value, uh, against fair market value, as if the property was just put on the open market. And, you know, in a lot of cases, if you're like, you know, obviously this is relative depending on whether it's, you know, the property is worth $100,000 or $100 million. But if you're around a million dollars and you're overassessed by, call it $50,000, it might not be worth the expense and the headache and all that of going through the appeal process. But um, as these common level ratios fluctuate from year to year, again, based largely on the residential market changing, um, it could have dramatic effects on, say, the office market, um, because all right. those common level ratios are consistent across the entire county. And so now that we're having sort of like an office decline, those those common level ratios might have a, a much more dramatic effect on uh, the difference between the, the fair market value of office and the computed value of office. So is, is it fair to say that a, a, at a minimum, a good candidate is someone who says, hey, my property is assessed at this much money. The common level ratio is this. I did the math and I got to a number. And that number is simply too high for what I think my property is worth. And, and at a minimum, that's sort of the starting point. Yeah, well said, right? In its simplest form, assessed value times common level ratio equals a computed value. 
that's higher than what you think your property value is worth, or even more importantly, or, or more um, understandably what you just paid for it. Um, right. You know, that, that, that's a really great starting point. And, and in most cases, that's a, that's the best kind of candidate for a tax appeal. And as you said earlier, uh, the, this, this part of it, you know, what does the county think my property's worth? You know, that's step one, but that, but like you said, that's only one consideration because you're going to take that number and then you're going to multiply it by, you know, what we unfortunately call the millage, uh, in, in throughout Pennsylvania. And that's how you get to your tax bill. So, um, if you're in a situation where let's say I'm in Lancaster city and my computed value is $500,000 and I just did a refinance and I said, well, I just got uh, an appraisal for my refinance and it's really worth 450. I mean, then you sort of have to do a cost benefit analysis because the reason your taxes are so high in Lancaster city is not necessarily just because of what the county thinks your property is worth. It's because the millage is really high. So $50,000 in Lancaster County may or may not be worth it over the long term to go through the process of uh, an assessment appeal. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think another thing to point out here, right, is that the common level ratio changes annually, and it's based on the prior year's sales. And if, as I mentioned previously, you know, the common level ratio is largely contingent on where residential pricing is going. So if residential pricing is going up, then common level ratios are technically, or there's common level ratios and factors. We'll say factors. Common level factors are also going up. Common level ratios are, are changing. Um, your deviation between market value and computed value could be changing as well. Right. Um, so and, ju- and, and just in case anyone finds it interesting, you know, Lancaster County had a reassessment not too long ago. So the common level ratio went to one. And I believe it is up now between one, three and one, four. So it kept going up each year since then. You know, we have had counties and I think we probably still have counties that have common level ratios that are less than one. So, you know, as you pointed out of how those things change, we have certain counties that uh, go through some pretty hard times and we've had common level ratios that are 0.8, 0.9, you know, numbers below one. So the county actually thinks your property is worth less than the assessment. Yeah, I know that's counties, um, I guess, especially in like the Northeast and along the New York state line and the, and the you know, Northern boundary, I think are, are more common um, to have a common level ratio below one. Right. And Mike, and as you mentioned, you know, the common level ratio uh, fluctuates year to year, but each county will eventually have a countywide reassessment. And then that common level ratio effectively becomes one. So whatever your tax bill says the county thinks your property's worth, that is what the county thinks the property's worth. There's no multiplying that by some other number to come up with that total. And that's a pretty uh, common time for a lot of people to file a tax assessment appeal, right? When that countywide reassessment takes place. Yeah, there's certainly a lot of weaknesses in how those reassessments take place. I mean, I think it's worth noting that the reassessments don't take place very often just because of how costly they are. So I know Lancaster has done one probably in the last 10 years. Um, Franklin County, which is nearby, I don't think they've done one for like 60 or 70 years. Um, (laughs) So their common level ratio is a lot higher because of how how property values have increased since then. But I'm sorry. 
kind of went off on a tangent there. What, what was what was the question you asked? Me? <laughs> well, uh, let's just go back to uh, once you do that preliminary analysis and, and you look at, you know, what does the county think this property is worth? What does this client think this property is worth? Why don't you take the analysis uh, from there on, you know, how you proceed and how you handle the appeal? Yeah, I mean, I guess it's important to remember that, you know, leases and appraisals are not significantly different from the way that I would handle like a financing appraisal, right? The, the scope of work is a little bit different, but in Pennsylvania, it's it's not just the bricks and sticks. It's not just the land plus the bricks and sticks. It's, it's you know, the total property rights. And that could be the leases that encumber the property and everything else like that. So, you know, that there's multiple ways that you might approach an appraisal that has like a lease in place or something to that effect. Talking from strictly an appraisal perspective, again, I mean, you just have to factor in the most likely buyer and, um, and kind of select your comps and reconciliations based on that. And if you, uh, if you had a situation, which uh, we do run into very frequently, where you have a property, and I'm actually thinking of a, a specific property right now in Dauphin County along the river that I think I've done three different agreements of sale for three different buyers for. Uh, if you have a property that sat there for sale for years, and uh, let's say the computed value on that property is five million, and it sells for one and a half million after being on the property for two, three years, um, isn't just the purchase price there probably a pretty good indicator of fair market value? I go out and sort of market my services as a consultant. To, uh, to candidates, I guess we call them, um, based on almost the exact same scenario that you just mentioned. So I'll have my staff look through sales that have occurred in the past year that are over a million dollars that have a deviation between computed value and sale price of call it more than like $100,000. Sometimes it's worth getting an appraiser involved in a situation like that if the case is big enough, if the, if the deviation is big enough. But a lot of times that property owner could probably go to the board themselves and take their agreement of sale and, uh, and argue it like that. Um, you know, obviously you probably want to get a lawyer involved to, to make sure that you're going through all the right, uh, filling out all the right forms and, and whatnot. Um, I think in a lot, of, a lot of cases, it is as simple as that. Um, you know, the, the property was exposed to the market for X period of time this is what the market's telling us. And, you know, what better evidence do you have at that point? Comps are irrelevant. You know, that's right. not, not I mean, I, they're not irrelevant, but they, they certainly are less important. I would think than than the sales contract itself. Yeah. I think the literal definition of fair market value is what is a willing buyer uh, going to pay a willing seller in an arm's length transaction. So if you have a property that sat there for that long, that what that buyer paid is probably a good indication of textbook fair market value. Um, one thing I wanted to mention, because it's probably the number one question I get, is the exact opposite of the scenario we just laid out, where a buyer goes in and purchases a property that let's say the computed value is $7 million and pays $21 million for that property. Uh, especially without estate buyers, if I'm representing the seller or if I'm local counsel for an out-of-state buyer, the number one question I get is, well, isn't this property going to get reassessed? And we ran our pro formas and all of our numbers on, on our profit based on paying taxes of 
let's say $70,000 a year. If those go to $210,000 a year, this is a different deal for us. And the answer to that question is uh, you are not going to get a spot reassessment uh, based on that deed getting recorded at $21 million because we've had a recent Supreme Court. Not only is that illegal in the Pennsylvania statute, but there's a recent Pennsylvania decision saying that it's unconstitutional to do spot reassessments unless you have a uniform methodology. Uh, so, you know, what that looks like is you, you would essentially have to have the county say, okay, we're only going to pursue a reassessment uh, anytime the computed value is exceeded by a certain percentage. And they have to apply that to both residential and commercial properties. Uh, do you have any uh, thing you want to uh, say about, you know, how spot reassessment, you know, what type of concern that really is? Well, and you might be able to speak to this better than, than I can. I, I don't keep up on the legislation as much as I probably should if I'm in this arena. But the fact is, I, I've heard from multiple lawyers that I don't know if they're call it, calling it like reverse tax appeals or it, it's basically how the school board is being a lot more aggressive in, in suburban counties outside of Philadelphia for instance, um, they're right. being a lot more aggressive and they're being successful in a lot of cases. And it's a really real concern out there that I, I feel like not a lot of people are talking about. Um, are you, are you able to speak to speak to that at, at all? Yes. Yeah. So spot reassessment is illegal. So the County on its own saying, we're just going to sort of cherry pick certain properties after, you know, typically after they're sold and these deeds are recorded, uh, that's illegal and unconstitutional unless there's some uniform methodology. And I'm not aware of really any county that has implemented that and, and feels like testing it out. School district appeals, on the other hand, do seem to be growing and they do seem to be on an uptick. And a school district is a party that is able to file an appeal just like a property owner is able to file an appeal. And in both of those cases, the party filing the appeal is the one that has the burden of establishing that the uh, amount that was uh, that is currently assessed is is incorrect. And uh, we have a pretty good idea, you know, within our footprint of who those school districts are. And uh, you know, in certain transactions, especially large commercial transactions, that justifies the expense of going through and litigating that. It does lead to buyers wanting to be uh, as creative as possible with how they structure their deals to try to avoid putting too much consideration on the real estate. So if you're buying a uh, if you're buying a business and you're buying the real estate and you're buying the FF&E and the personal property and equipment and goodwill, uh, I do think it leads some buyers to say, let's put more money in some of these other things. <laughs> let's allocate more of these purchase price in this equipment and goodwill and not on this real estate to avoid that risk. But that there, uh, I think the data is showing that school district appeals are on the upswing. In that same vein, I've heard of entity purchases being a lot more common, sort of to to avoid the whole deed process, right? The whole like paper trail. Um, yeah. Can you speak to that? Any any of the risks that might be associated with that? I, I can. Yeah. So um, what's funny about that is, you know, ten years ago, what people used to look at doing is uh, doing entity purchases. And trying to structure, you know, without going into a completely different topic, trying to structure these transactions where you are um, you're you're buying an entity and you're avoiding transfer tax. And used to we used to have all these eighty nine eleven transactions and 
trying to structure buying all the other uh, ownership interests later. Well, the funny thing is in the uh, in Pennsylvania under our realty transfer tax regu- tax regulations, if you buy an entity and you file with with the county, what is called a declaration of an acquired company, you legitimately pay realty transfer tax on the computed value. So to give you an example, if you're in uh, you know, most of the state and you're paying 2% transfer tax and you go and say, I'll buy your real estate for $10 million, I will give you $10 million. But instead of doing a deed and paying $10 million, I'll buy your LLC. Now, there's some risks there that you can certainly mitigate with due diligence that I'm going to inherit your liabilities and all those sorts of things. We, lawyers can deal with all those things. But if the computed value of that property is, let's say, $2 million, you legitimately, legally pay realty transfer tax on $2 million and not $10 million because that's what the regs say. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. You file a declaration of an acquired company. You pay the tax based on the computed value, and that's what you owe. So it not only does it uh, usually avoid this risk of school district reassessment, which is a very realistic risk in a lot of places, but it uh, will also lower your realty transfer tax. And I did that in a very, very large $50-some million transaction where the computed value is $20 million dollars in a county where the transfer tax was 5%. So wow. you're, you're looking at a 3% savings on $30 million and it was perfectly legal. The only downside is that the buyer inherits the liability associated with buying a company rather than just an asset, which again, there's ways to mitigate that. Yeah, that's interesting. What, can, you, uh, can you walk us through uh, Tell us what the actual appeal itself looks like. You know, what, you know, what is it like to kind of walk in front of that, that board and, and, and what does a typical presentation entail and, and look like? Yeah, gosh, I can remember a few years ago when I was doing my first one, I was really intimidated, especially in Dauphin County where they're up on like a podium and kind of <laughs> looking down on you like a judge, right? And, and to be honest, most, most of the places that I've been in, and I present it in front of Cumberland, York, Lancaster, and Dauphin. They're all pretty nice. But a lot of these people are not in commercial real estate uh, a lot of times. So, right. so a, lot of the, a lot of times they're more familiar with residential or are able to speak that language a little bit better. So if, if I'm an appraiser and I'm coming to the board, what I like to do is, you know, my, my commercial appraisals sometimes end up being 100 pages long. And, um, and, and what I like to do is, is pass out like a two pager that kind of just like summarizes it like the major points i've gotten really good feedback about that and and an idea that i'm toying with recently is is actually presenting like a video so my, yeah. my entire testimony if you will would be like it would base it wouldn't necessarily be just an, an interview it would be a video walkthrough of the property with like a voiceover and um and i haven't presented that yet that that's sort of been in the coffers until now but that's uh, that's something that I think could could be really valuable because especially when you're in that hearing, sometimes, especially as a, as appraisers, we're not always the best um, storytellers, if you will, or or public speakers. Right. Um, so getting caught up in and remembering all your thoughts sometimes becomes difficult. So so having that packaged and being able to just click play 
uh, I think could be an advantage. Um, you know, again, I, I use the word storytelling there and, and really that is what an appraisal is. So, you know, being able to communicate the results and sort of your methodology and whatnot, that's, that's all the board is asking. And uh, again, as you, as you led with the burden of proof is on the owner. So it behooves them to contract with an appraiser that's able to communicate pretty well when, when you're, when you're going in front of the board or expect to. Oh, absolutely. And if you're going through this process, it's because you think you're going to pay or are paying entirely too much in taxes. And I think, you know, personally, the two instances where it it has benefited people to do that is with the countywide reassessment, which I think, you know, hopefully your your panel there is pretty sympathetic because they just went and reassessed thousands and thousands of properties in a short period of time. And I think they're pretty open to the fact that some of those might not be that accurate. And the other situation is, is the example we gave earlier of someone going and buying a property that's been on the market for a long time. And, and they know going into it that they're inheriting an assessment that's entirely too high that they plan on uh, appealing. Um, the, the requests I get most commonly, though, from clients to pursue this process are the examples where you know we buy raw land, we buy a ho- we build a hotel, we build a very you know nice new building on it, and someone gets a tax bill and they don't like they don't like what that new number says. And in that situation, we probably have an appraisal we just used for financing that says the property is worth exponentially more than that computed value is worth, and we end up not pursuing that. But in the, in the situations where it does make sense, you have someone who's looking at a tremendous amount of savings over a very, very long period of time. And if you're going to go through the process, you should come prepared and, and come with uh, a very compelling presentation that, like you said, is going to make a lot of sense to someone who more than likely is not in the commercial real estate field at all. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, especially with income producing properties, I mean, what I'm about to go through kind of applies to everyone, um, whether it's income producing or not, but it's best realized in an income producing property. And that's, you know, if I can save you $5,000 a year on taxes and you use a 10% rate of return, 10% cap rate, right? That's actually yeah. increasing your property value by $50,000. Um, so the, the cost of hiring an appraiser to take you through that process or a consultant to take you through that process, it, it's worth it when you start looking at it like that in terms of your, your value enhancement and how you can, pro- how you can boost net operating income and, and that sort of thing. Um, and, and also put yourself in a position where you know, one day you're going to sell that property and with some of my clients, you know, that day might not even be 10 years from now. And you understand that that tax bill is, is going to affect how much a buyer is willing to pay for it. The higher that tax bill is, the less they're willing to pay for that property because they're going to determine value on a, uh, on a cash flow basis. It's a multiple of cash flow basis. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think I, I, something that struck me, and I wish I kind of would have led with this, but Again, we're not appealing your tax liability, your tax bill. Uh, that that's that's related to your assessment or your implied market value. Right. Um, but I've heard multiple people. I've been approached, I should say, by multiple people that say I'm paying entirely way too much tax on my property. I'm like, well, that's because you're you're, you're in Lancaster City, right? And you're not in Manhattan. Right. 
or wherever, right? It's, it, you kind of kind of signed up for that when you bought the property here. Um, <laughs> I wish I, you know, I, I love Lancaster City. I li- I'm living downtown right now, but um, yeah, the, the the tax bill is is maybe one of the worst things about it. Um, Absolutely. But yeah, so so I, I think that's important to, to note as well. No, that's a great point. I, I also uh, have a home in Lancaster City, and my taxes uh, are through the roof. But to your point, it's that's mostly driven by where I am. So if I went and filed an assessment appeal and I said, you know, I think this is $50,000 too high. I think this is even $100,000 too high. Frankly, my bill is not going to drop to the point where it's no, it's still going to be high. You could take 50 to 75,000 off my assessment and my bill is still going to be high. Well, thank you very much, Mike, for uh, participating in the podcast and giving your expertise. And if anyone has any questions about assessment appeals, appraisals, or anything we talked about, they can reach out to Mike or myself and stay tuned for the upcoming legal disclaimer. Thank you. Thanks, Derek. Please, listeners, understand that the information provided during episodes of Barley Snyder's podcast is for general informational purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice or as a substitute for legal counsel. Nothing in this podcast is intended to create an attorney-client relationship. If you have questions about your legal situation or about how to apply information discussed in this episode to your situation, or about how any other information found on our website may affect your business or organization, you should consult an attorney for assistance.